Hello and welcome to Warwick's Classics in Discussion podcast. During the last days of the Roman Republic, one man emerged victorious, Octavian, Caesar's adoptive son, later called Augustus. After his ascent to power, he pacified large parts of the known world. In Rome, he kept the populace happy with bread and circuses and slowly eliminated all opposition. Yet he also had to confront major setbacks. For instance, the scandalous infidelity of his daughter and granddaughter became the gossip of the empire. Augustus built himself a massive mausoleum and composed an account of his reign, which was placed onto its walls after his death. It is the queen of inscriptions and survives in three copies from Galatia in central Turkey. So who was this man who became the first emperor of Rome and shaped history like few others? How did Augustus obtain and retain his colossal power for nearly half a century? And how does his account, recorded in the Queen of Inscriptions, differ from other historical sources? With me to discuss Augustus and his Reis Gestae is Alison Cooley, my colleague at Warwick, whose new edition and translation of this important inscription has just been published by Cambridge University Press. So, Alison, I believe that the story about uh, the fall of the Republic and the last days of the Republic begins with the death of Caesar on the Ides uh, of uh, March in uh, 44 BC. So how is uh, Caesar's, Julius Caesar's death and uh, the rise of uh, Octavian, how are they linked and how, is, uh, how, how does, did that happen? At the time when Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, his great-nephew, then called Octavianus, was only uh, 18 years old. He was also out of Rome, so it came as something of a surprise that within a few years he'd risen from basically a nobody to being ruler of the whole of the Roman Empire. So how did he do it? I mean, it's roughly you know, like in 30, 31... 31 BC, we have the Battle of Actium, is that right? That's right, uh, yes. So that's kind of when he, his power is consolidated. So during these um, 10, 11, 12 years from 44 till 31, uh, or I mean it's 13 years, so he, he managed to consolidate his power. How did he do that? Uh, First of all, through climbing the greasy pole of getting the veteran soldiers who'd fought for Caesar and who'd loved Caesar on his side, but he didn't just rely on them being affectionate towards the name of Julius Caesar, he actually gave them quite a load of cash as well, and that always helps. So he had lots of money that he'd inherited from Caesar, and he used it very cannily to win support, not just from soldiers, but also from the normal inhabitants of Rome. For instance, he made a point of making sure that the people of Rome received the money handed out to them according to the will of Julius Caesar. And he then made sure that they got lovely entertainments to watch, lots of shows, lots of animals being killed, exactly, lots of gladiators, (laughs) triumphs, and also everyday things like grain doll. He made sure that the people of Rome didn't go hungry, and that was a very, very important aspect in getting his popularity. So basically, um, Octavian, as he was then probably still known, at least uh, called so by his enemies, uh, uh, bought uh, the favor of the Roman soldiery and uh, the Roman people in a way and must have amassed tremendous political and military power. So 
What then happens during these last years of the Republic with Pompey in the 30s? How does he finally get rid of the, his enemies and becomes the first emperor? Well, one of the things that tends to be underestimated is actually the role of Cicero in all of this. Cicero, you'll remember, is the great Roman statesman, the orator, the ex-consul who defeated Catiline. Um, but he also was very instrumental in supporting Octavian, when Octavian really wasn't trusted by many other people. And it was Cicero who, right at the beginning of 43, got Octavian a grant of power officially granted to him by the Senate. Now, it's important to realise that at this point, Octavian is now only 19 years old, and it's completely outrageous for a Roman to be given a magisterial power like this, like Cicero and achieves still a for child him. In the yes, you have to be. Yeah. I mean, in, in Rome, there are rules about these sorts yeah. of things. You have to be 40 before you become mm. a consul. Well, Octavian does it when he's 19. Mm. So he has the support of Cicero, he has an army. Um, he does spend many, many years battling it out on various fronts, first of all against Sextus Pompey, who's the son of Julius Caesar's great rival, Pompey the Great, and then, of course, Mark Antony best known to us now With as the Cleopatra. great lover of Cleopatra, exactly. And so I'm not, I don't want to give the impression that it was all easygoing. Plain sailing. So exactly. Speak, yeah. But he did gradually eliminate one after the other of the various potential so opponents. How did he do it? He had the support of Cicero, the great orator. He got the Senate. He has the money from Caesar. But so what happens then at the end of the 30s? How did he finally break through and crush uh, crush his foes? A lot of people would say that it was all Cleopatra's fault. That the fact that Mark Antony decided to abandon his current wife, who just happened to be uh, Augustus's sister, and went to live with Cleopatra, outraged the audience back at home. And Octavian jumped on the bandwagon and advertised the iniquity of Mark Antony, um, portraying him as basically being a traitor to the Roman way of life and becoming Easternized and Egyptianized, which in those days was really a very, bad. very bad thing to be. <laughs> and, so they were yes. soft and given to exactly. luxury and effeminate. And, and so partly it was cunning image um, projection and anti propaganda against Antony, if we can call it that, that meant that Octavian won more and more um, powers within Italy and more and more support, that then meant that when it came down to the showdown against Antony... In Alexandria. He, in Alexandria, that he had lots of supporters who sort of waited till the last minute and then defected to Octavian once they saw the way the wind was blowing. I see. So basically the... Um, at home... So, so basically at home, what we have is uh, support for... Octavian, Augustus, uh, and then all the other people fall, you know, behind or come to um, Augustus's uh, rescue or support him. And uh, Mark Antony is abandoned and basically takes his own life. Is that right? Yes, yeah. and also I think it's important not to underestimate the charisma of Augustus. I mean, so far we've been calling him both Octavian and Augustus, but I think it's important to realise that in these crucial years how he would call himself was actually Julius Caesar, son of a god. Right. That's Julius Caesar, the father, you know, like the god exactly. who didn't make it yeah. on the Ides of March. Yes. But after he'd been assassinated, he was then rehabilitated in his memory and was made an official god within the pantheon of Roman deities, complete with his own priest, 
who happened to be Anthony, <laughs> and his own temple in the Forum. And then um, Octavian, or the young Caesar, organised games where a comet was spotted in the sky, which was thought to be the soul of Julius Caesar going up into the heavens as a new god. So he really took all the advantages that were thrown his way and publicised them. So, for instance, on coins, we get pictures of the statue of the new god Julius Caesar with a star above his brow to Mm. symbolise the comet that was his apotheosis. Mm. So, and then, uh, because his father, or adoptive father, or whatever, is divine, so the son is also divine, is that right? Not exactly, but it certainly makes him a bit different, shall we say. (laughs) Yeah, so he... When does he actually become emperor? I mean, he seizes power in 31, 30, something like that. That's 28. Yeah. What is, uh, so when is the moment when he stands in Rome and says, I'm the king? That's a very, very good question. Um, if you look in the ancient sources, the beginning of the reign of Augustus is variously dated to 31 BC, Actium, 30 BC, the fall of Alexandria, 27 BC, when he actually takes the name Augustus, But I think there'd be a very strong argument for saying that 29 BC was a crucial year. This was when Augustus actually returned back to Italy and to Rome, having been abroad campaigning. And this is the exactly this is the first time that he then returns to Rome, and he celebrates a triumph um, over three days. And this, I think, would have been the moment where he was really looking like top dog at Rome, Mm. and where he also so he. Augustus, that means the um, revered one, or what? how would you translate this? Uh, yes, I think Augustus has... It's a very... It's a word with lots of different meanings in Latin. It comes from the stem algeo, so it's got an idea of um, increasing, growing, uh, growing um, but also when it gets translated into Greek, it becomes sebastos, Sebast, yeah. so it's then revered, the holy one. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it, that's why no one ever translates <laughs> it, because it's more or less impossible to translate. So, but already this, uh, giving himself the name Augustus uh, suggests that uh, maybe he's not yet a god, but he's certainly... Of that ilk? Is that yes, right? and I think it's very important to realise that Augustus doesn't give himself the title. It's actually one of his supporters who stands up in the Senate and proposes that he should be given this as a title. That's like a planted backbench question, is that right? I mean, he might have had a little bit of probing. I'm sure he did, but I think it's very important to appreciate that the, the person who suggested it had previously supported Antony. Oh. So presumably, again, it's a way of... It's as, mu- as much in his interests as it is in Augustus's mm. interests. Yeah, so he's kind of a, in uh, in victory. He's uh, you know like kind to his former opponents. Absolutely, uh, magnanimous yes. and uh, that sort of thing. So he becomes in twenty nine or twenty seven or whenever he becomes certainly the top dog. He becomes the most powerful man in Rome, but he never calls himself king, does he? No, he avoids that. He doesn't even want to be called dictator. Uh-huh. He doesn't like that idea because I think this is what lies behind the assassination of Julius Caesar. It was when Julius Caesar was named perpetual dictator and then was suspected perhaps of aiming at kingship that then brought about his assassination. So I think Augustus was always bearing that in mind and not wanting to overstep the mark. Mm. So he takes the reins of power in Rome and uh, begins to embark on a massive uh, um, you know, project of reform, of building, of conquest. Uh, so both internally and externally he does a lot for Rome. What does he do? To 
answer that in several different parts. Um, first of all, um, conquest is always important for the Romans. That's the thing that gets them prestige. So he goes out to the west, he goes to Spain and to Gaul, that's modern France, and finishes off the conquests that Julius Caesar hadn't finished. He also sends his deputies out to the east, to Syria, to Armenia, um, and tries to persuade the Parthians to play ball. He has obviously already conquered Egypt, so he gets a great deal of prestige out of that. And, and, and also he then um, pushes northwards towards the Rhine. Mm -hmm. So the Roman Empire is expanding on all fronts under Augustus, and in, in very successfully. That's not to say Augustus himself was actually a very good military commander, but he had people like Marcus Agrippa who did the fighting for him and who were actually extremely good generals. So military conquest was one important way in which he consolidated his position. The second way was through various canny constitutional changes. For instance, he kicked out lots of senators from the Senate and reduced the number. So he made sure that the Senate was full of people who supported him, um, surprise, surprise, in the course of doing this, his name now appears, he's now becoming the leader of the House, if you like, mm. um, but he's put himself there. Mm. Usually it's actually the, the longest-serving senator who's known as the princeps of the Senate. Now it's Augustus. Yes. He um, holds censuses of the people. And then he, I've already mentioned, he gives games, he gives grain. And then, as you mentioned, the building projects are very important in the single year 28 BC, he says that he restores 82 temples in the city of Rome alone. He, so he presents himself as championing the gods. And of course, what the Romans thought was, if the gods supported them, then that means that Rome will be able to conquer everybody else. So to represent himself as favoured by the gods is going to be a very important thing. But as well, he also builds theatres. Um, friends of his build amphith an amphitheatre. In Rome. in Rome, aqueducts, baths. The oh. first big imperial bath building was built by Marcus Agrippa, his right-hand man. And then down to functional things like fountains. So he really catered for the, 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 the basic needs of hygiene and sanitation as well. So he embarks on all these building projects, uh, many of them very useful for, for the common man, you know, like hygiene, baths, as you said, uh, improvement in infrastructure. They are, you know, like games, the bread comes in from Egypt, so that's uh, all taken care of. And obviously we also talk about this, uh, you know, like Pax, um, you know, like this, uh, you know, like peace, which, uh, which uh, this new era of prosperity, which he instigates. That's really what's happening over the course of the 40 years in which he's a ruler. Is the, that right? There's one other thing to throw into the mixture, and that's, for the first time, the idea of, an, of a ruling dynasty, ruling dynasty is emerging. So for the first time now, Augustus openly begins to build up uh, members of his family's potential heirs to him. First of all, perhaps his nephew Marcellus, and then his grandsons Gaius and then Lucius Caesar, who were his grandsons by his daughter Julia and Marcus Agrippa. Sadly for Augustus, that all goes pear-shaped, yeah, so and they all die. die. <laughs> but nevertheless, we can see very vividly how he's really making a big attempt to set in line who the next emperor is going to be. So he wants to create a dynasty, although he doesn't want to be called king. No. That's like the uh, strange uh, contradiction, at least yes. in, 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 yeah. in modern terms. Uh, so if we turn now maybe to the, uh, to the years um, 
um, to the latter years of his reign. Is everything, once he's established, uh, the great conquests have been finished, is everything nice and uh, calm in Rome, so to speak, at the, on the, the home front? It would be nice to think so, but there are various domestic and foreign affair disasters that, that strike him. First of all, his daughter Julia is accused of adultery and he feels he has to exile her. Which he does. Which he does, because one of the things that Augustus has proclaimed is a back-to-basics morality oh. and he's passed various laws prohibiting and penalising adultery. And then his granddaughter Julia does the same thing. She too <laughs> is exiled. Then, So on the domestic front, he becomes a very unhappy old man, I think. And but there's, the, a, there's a link also with uh, these exiles, there's a link to Ovid, is that right? Uh, well, there might be. Some people have, have suggested that Ovid might be involved as one of the, uh, uh, the lovers of Julia the Younger, the, the granddaughter. The granddaughter, um, and this is why Ovid too had to go yes, into exile exactly. he, to he, the Black Sea. He gets sent off. But also on the foreign affairs front, things begin to go pear-shaped again. Uh, disaster in Germany, where Arminius, the German chieftain, slaughters three legions in in the Schuttenberg forest, and there's a today. huge yes, and there's a huge um, revolt in Pannonia at rough, roughly the same time. Where's that? Uh, That's in the Balkans, basically, oh. where then. Augustus has to do emergency recruitment to the army. Even ex-slaves are now allowed to become soldiers in the Roman army, which is previously unheard of. So, in many ways, I think he doesn't go out with a great show of fireworks oh. in many ways. The last eight years of his life, things really don't look so good for him anymore. But still, when he dies, uh, he already has a big... Um in a mausoleum in shape. I mean, he bought, uh, I mean, he built already early on in his reign in the 20s uh, BC. He started building a, a huge grave complex, let's say, for himself. Uh, is that right? And so he, he has this idea of creating, you know, like this dynasty of putting himself up to be like somebody, some, somebody to be remembered. Is that right? Uh, yes, and I think an, another possibility is that and this partly goes back to what we were saying earlier about Mark Antony that whereas Mark Antony wanted to be buried in Egypt next to Cleopatra, part of the propaganda war was Augustus saying, well, actually, I want to be buried at Rome, and I'm going to build a dirty great big mausoleum to prove it. Mm, so, mm. yes, I think that's, that's all part of the, the image there. But I think it's in, going back to what I was saying about the last years of his life, perhaps not feeling quite so positive. I think this might help to explain perhaps why he was so eager to leave a really positive record of his achievements in uh, the form of an inscription set up outside his mausoleum. So this is this inscription is what we know as the, or was, what Momsen has, has called the queen of inscriptions, uh, an account of what he has done, res gestae divi uh, Augusti, you know, like the, the achievements, let's say, the deeds of, uh, of the divine uh, Augustus. And this inscription was written by him in the last few months of his life, is that right? And then put uh, in front of his mausoleum in bronze. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's important to appreciate that before it was even inscribed, it was read out to the Senate as part of the, the sort of funeral rites of Augustus. So how long is this, uh, this inscription? It's, uh, it's longer than... Oh, it's a fair few pages, yes. Yeah. But I think essentially what you have to realise is that Augustus left 
this document sealed up to be read out in the Senate. And what it did was it described uh, his greatest achievements, all the things he'd done for the people of Rome. And I think partly it was a, a hint, if you like, to the senators saying, well, what are you going to do about it then? And perhaps what he was trying to do was to suggest to them that he too should become God. And that was, in fact, exactly their response, mm. that they then voted him his own temple, his own cult. And they've all been carefully selected, as we've said earlier. They are kind of his, his cronies and uh, other people who have received favours from him. So it's not all that surprising that, uh, uh, you know, the Senate was quite fav favourably inclined towards him. Is that right? Uh, yes, I mean, I think it's, it's important to realise quite how long he's ruled as well. So by yeah. the time he dies in AD 14... There were very few. Years, yeah. There were very few people who oh. could remember what life was like, uh, you know, when the so-called republic was up and running. Yeah, because even the last years of, of the last days of the the last years of the republic were pretty tumultuous, and yes, nobody exactly. really wanted to go yeah. back to different civil wars and different uh, conflicts. Uh, so we have this inscription. Basically, it's a record of his deeds written by him probably during the last uh, months uh, of his life, uh, as you suggest in your book, uh, uh, in addition and translation commentary of this text, uh, um, probably triggered, so to speak, by two bad omens, uh, as I understand it. So he saw some bad omens and then he said, oh, it's time for me to bring my affairs in order. So he writes this account. And can you just give us a brief overview of what's in this account? What does he say, actually, in, in this account, in this uh, inscription? Maybe we start by, with that, and then we come to how we know about it nowadays. Well, it's usual to, to divide it up into three parts. First of all, a sort of account of how he came to power, and the sort of thing we were talking about earlier, that the assassination of Julius Caesar and his, his um, various powers granted him by the Senate mm. and his various battles and the civil wars... And then we get an account of the things he's done for the people of Rome, the various... It's full of facts and figures. Everything is, I've given X million pounds or, you know, so many measures of corn. Everything is very precise and detailed to, to give the impression that everything is accountable. So he gives long lists of all the buildings he's built... He describes all the magistracies that he's held, all the priesthoods that he's held, and then he goes on to list his foreign uh, conquests as well. So it's to do with achievements in Rome, gifts to the people of Rome, and then the, the foreign conquests as well. They're the two main themes that go through it. And I think it's important to remember that the words raise gestein Latin really have a military connotation. They're military achievements but that it was very embedded in Roman culture that if you were a victorious general, you then spent some of the spoils of war for the benefit of the Roman people. So that's why the inscription has these two main themes of foreign conquests and money spent for the benefit of the people of Rome. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is the inscription. It's an account of what you've done internally and externally. And as we've said before, originally it was to be, or it was actually put up in bronze, in front of his mausoleum with a couple of other inscriptions. Uh, and the audience of this inscription was obviously uh, the people of Rome. Is that right? Uh, yes, uh, of course. Th there's a lot of debate Senate. about who could read it, mm. who would want to read it. Um, only mad epigraphers these days stand around reading hundreds of lines of inscriptions carved up on walls. 
But in those days, I think there are various activities around the mausoleum. We know there are annual sacrifices in honour of the, the people buried, the members of Augustus's family buried inside the mausoleum. So people actually, it's not just a question of the inscriptions there, no one ever looks at it, but whether actually anyone would look at it and read it from top to bottom, I, I would doubt. Mm. But nevertheless, I think you know, when people go back, they might just point to it and say, oh gosh, you know, look, look at how much Augustus did for us. We must make sure we honour mm. his his and it is, I mean, like the most massive inscription. You don't even have to read it mm. in order to see how much he has done. I mean, there's yes. visual proof, and it's in bronze, and it looks mm. good, and it's all uh, very impressive. So I understand that nothing remains of this uh, inscription in Rome. So how on earth do we know about it? Well, it's one of these curious quirks of fate that the, there's absolutely no trace of the, the original in Rome, which must have been melted down at some point through the ages. But because three copies were made in the province of Galatia, which is in modern Turkey, uh, one copy at Ankara, one at Apollonia, and one at Antioch, we actually have fragments of these stone inscriptions that do survive. At Ankara, it's carved on the wall of the temple of the divine Augustus and the goddess Rome, Uh, down at Apollonia, it seems to have been at the bottom of a statue base supporting statues of the imperial family. And at Antioch, it seems to have been part of a, a gateway leading into a complex again with a temple to Augustus himself. And I, as I understand it, in, uh, in Ankara, or what is modern-day Ankara, so in central Turkey, the inscription is in both Greek and Latin, is that right? That's right. So probably in the eastern part of the empire, people weren't very familiar with Latin, is that right? Well, I think the difference then is, yes, you're right, at Ankara it's in Greek and Latin, at Apollonia it's only in Greek, and at Antioch it's actually only in Latin. But the point about that is that Antioch is a colony of veteran soldiers, so they're actually basically Italians transplanted to live in Galatia. Who, who, taught, who, Latin. who talk Latin yes. and who taught their good wives how to speak Latin, Absolutely. presumably. So, um, and uh, the Ankara inscription, or Ankara inscription is the most, uh, most complete one, is that right? Yes, it is, yes, mm. and it's partly because it's embedded into the walls of the temple, it's, it's suffered less, because mm. the temple itself has been through various stages, it's been a mosque until mm. relatively recently. Um, so it's being preserved as a structure. As a structure. So for me it's a bit strange. I mean, uh, Galatia is the Galatia from the letter to the Galatians. It's in central Turkey. It's not exactly the center of the empire, if that's uh, a fair judgment. How come we have three inscriptions of this text there and nobody, no, nowhere else? I mean, was it that they... They had these things put up everywhere in Italy and Germany and whatnot and only there. They survive or is there something more to this? So. Well, it's entirely possible that there are copies waiting to be found elsewhere in the empire. And But I nowadays, I dismiss unlikely. That. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. However, <laughs> I think it's important to, to think of the Galatian copies in terms of the, the impetus coming from the local communities. Mm. Um, for instance, at the colony Ankara, at the colony at Antioch, Part of the image of the town was that it wanted to represent itself as a miniature Rome. Mm. So, for instance, the, the town said, oh, we are on seven hills, just like the city of Rome. Mm. And it also named its districts after districts at Rome. So, in a way, if you want to pretend you're a miniature Rome, what better way to do that than to imitate a monument from mm. Rome? Mm. And we know this was something that happened in colonies elsewhere. So, for instance, 
a colony in Portugal, modern mm. Portugal, called Merida, mm. uh, has copies of uh, the forum that Augustus built, mm -hmm. but in Portugal. Mm. So it's something that the colonists want to feel that they're, you know, Rome from Rome, if you so like. But I mean, once again, why, no why not the, these uh, race questions? Why not this queen of inscription, this most important, the longest inscription, the most beautiful inscription from? Why not this? Why only in Galatia? Part of it may be that Galatia's a new area. It was conquered by Augustus. Oh. So they may feel somehow more attached to his memory than other places. Mm. That's one possibility. Of course, the other possibility is that there was a provincial governor who decided that in order to curry favour with the next emperor, Tiberius, the best way to do this would be to make sure that Augustus is honoured in a fitting way throughout his province. So another possibility is that it's actually some senator from Rome who's governing Galatia and saying, right, I want copies of this to be in various communities mm. in, my, in my patch. But as I understand it from your book, uh, there's also a local element, especially in the Greek translation to this. I mean, it's not just the inscription as it appears in Rome? Yes, that's right. I th um, a lot of people have been puzzled about why this text, which essentially is all about beating up foreigners and giving <laughs> gifts to the people of Rome, you know, why would that be put up in Galatia? The yeah. Gal why would the Galatians well, want to be Antioch reminded? Still, if it's a, yeah, if it's, a corporate, it's okay, but why? why would the people of Ankara want to be reminded that they've been beaten up <laughs> by the Romans? Well, if you actually look at how it's translated into the Greek, which is the local language, the Greek actually adapts... The Latin. It's not a word-for-word -word translation. So whenever Augustus says about his various triumphs, it slightly glosses over it and makes it sound a bit more civilized. A bit more civilized. And so, for instance, the big heading, where in the Latin it says um, the the money given to the people of Rome or the gifts given to the people of Rome, the Greek just says and the gifts given by Augustus, and yes. it just doesn't happen to mention the fact that they're given to the people of Rome. So by these fairly small but significant changes, the, the whole tenor of the inscription is, I think, changed, especially for the Galatian audience. Mm. So some people would say that these, uh, this account of the deeds of Augustus, of the divine Augustus, is just propaganda. Basically, here you have an emperor at the end of his life, writes an account of well, how great he is, what he has done, and so on and so forth. Uh, and you know, like his idea is, you know, like, this is how I get myself a spot in the pantheon. You know, so it's a propaganda exercise. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, I think you can call it propaganda in terms of just that initial audience in the Senate where perhaps Augustus is trying to persuade them to make him a god. But I think propaganda it tends to have quite negative overtones. I mean, it requires distortion of the truth. It requires um, people to change their behaviour in a way. If propaganda is successful, mm. it means people react in a particular way. And whereas we're used to you know, movies and mass pamphlets... It was much more circumscribed in its audience than that, I think. But, for instance, the two Julias, you know, like uh, the daughter and granddaughter, who went on a sex rampage, let's call it that, uh, I mean, that's not exactly in the Reis Gestae, is it? Uh, it's certainly not in the Reis Gestae, but you could say, fair enough, it's not exactly one of the achievements of the <laughs> divine Augustus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have mentioned that he sent them in ex into exile, but anyhow... Well, that's a fascinating, fascinating journey through uh, Roman history, through this uh, 
age, the last days of the Republic, the early empire, the first emperor, and this wonderful text, um, or very interesting text preserved uh, in central Turkey, which gives us an account of Augustus's reign. So thank you, Alison, for talking to me. Thank you, Lisa.